0: Heavenly Father, God, we are so thankful for the privilege of being here this morning. We are so thankful that you are here in our presence, that you are working powerfully on each one of our hearts and minds right now, that you will communicate what you want to teach us, and that you will help us to assimilate that, that knowledge in both of our hearts and our minds. Father, thank you so much for the powerful work that you are doing. We pray for these things. We thank you for them in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus, in his powerful message to Laodicea, in other words, you and me, told about a special end-time self-deception. A deception where we would, as Christians, believe that we were well-off spiritually, that we were rich and in need of nothing and did not realize how bad-off we truly were, wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. But, you know, this is not just a common End time problem. Take, for example, Peter. Peter, in, in some of the most beautiful uh, proclamation of love and fidelity, said this Even though all may fall beca- away because of you, I will never fall away. Even if I have to die for you or with you, I will not deny you. Isn't it an incredible statement? Do you think if you had asked Peter, at that particular moment in time, how are you doing spiritually? Do you think he would say, wow, great, excellent. I have given up all for the Lord. I am willing to die for him. And yet just a few hours later, Peter denied that he even knew the man. How are you and I doing spiritually, really doing spiritually? Why did Peter deny Jesus Perhaps his true spiritual condition was not as good as he thought it was. And what about you and and me? Could we be shallow soil or thorny soil Christians and not even realize it? How can we know? How can we possibly know? On what do we base the information about our true spiritual condition in our lives? We can get a clue of Peter's problem by looking at the hours between that wonderful proclamation and Jesus' crucifixion. The Bible records that those who had arrested Jesus took him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the teachers of the law and the elders had assembled, but Peter followed him at a distance. My friends, Peter followed Jesus, but he followed him at a distance. And it was that distance that made him deny his Lord. Contrast that with the disciple John. John went with Jesus right into the judgment hall. John was with Jesus throughout the entire process, even at the cross. John was there. John followed Jesus closely, not at a distance, like Peter. Peter had just declared that he knew not Jesus, but he now realized with bitter grief how well his Lord knew him and how accurately he had read his heart the falseness of which was unknown even to himself. Peter did not know his own heart. (laughs) He considered himself an all-out, unreserved follower of Christ. And yet it turns out that he was deceived about his true spiritual condition. How am I doing spiritually? How are you doing spiritually? How can we know? On what do we base that knowledge? Are we following Jesus closely? Are we following him at a distance? How do we know? Peter's following in a distance problem is a common problem. In fact, Jesus told a parable about four types of soil, which represent four types of people in this world. Everybody in this world falls into one of these four categories. The one is the path, the hard path. These are the people that don't care about God at all. Hardened hearts uh, don't even claim to follow Jesus. Then there is the rocky soil Christian. They joyfully let God into their hearts. They joyfully follow Jesus until... Until things get rough and then they fall away. And then there is the thorny soil type of person. They gladly, joyfully let Jesus into their hearts, but they also let other things into their heart that eventually crowds Jesus out. And then, of course, there's the fourth soil. They follow Jesus, period. End of story. Which type of person are you and I? Are we like Peter? who follow Jesus until things get hard? Are we um, the, the type of Christian where we let Jesus in, but we also let worldliness in, and that worldliness crowds Jesus out? Or are we the type of person like John who follows Jesus, period, no matter what? But it gets even scarier than this. Jesus said, enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter through it. For the gate is small, and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it. Do you, like me, find those words to be scary? A little bit frightening, aren't they? Jesus is saying that there are few who find it. How can that be? But that's not as scary as it gets. (laughs) In some ways, it actually gets worse. There was a time when Jesus was preaching in Galilee, and this man came up to him, and the man said to Jesus, Lord, are there just a few who are being saved? What kind of question is that? Why what do you think Jesus was talking about at that particular moment in time when this man came up to him afterwards and says, "Wow, Lord, really? Are there just a few who are going to be saved?" And you would think that at this point Jesus would say some comforting words, Jesus would encourage him and say, "Don't worry about it too much, just do this or you know, but Jesus didn't do that. And in fact, Jesus said some of the most frightening words in all of scripture. He said, Strive to enter through the narrow door, for many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able to. Now this is frightening to me because these are not hard-hearted Christian or hard-hearted people that don't care about Christ. These are people who seek to enter and are not able to enter. For some reason, they're not able to get in. Many, Christ says, will seek to enter and not be able to get in. They fail. And my friends... It's important for you, to, you and I to understand why they fail and how we can avoid that failure. These are all scary words that we've looked at, but, but perhaps the most frightening of them all are found in Matthew 7 when Jesus says this, Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Here is a group of people, Who sincerely believe that when Jesus comes, he is going to receive them with open arms and say, Well done, good and faithful servant. And yet Jesus has to sadly say to them, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Isn't that scary? Have you noticed in these passages that we looked at how many times the word many is used? Many enter the broad way. Many seek to enter heaven, but are not able to. Many mistakenly cry out, Lord, Lord. And Jesus says to them, I never knew you. It is a solemn statement that I make to the church that not one in 20 whose names are registered upon the church books are prepared to close their earthly history and would be as verily without God and without hope in the world as the common sinner. My friends, this is an important question. How are you and I doing spiritually? How do we know? How can we know? We must understand this question and how we can answer it. Are we one of the many? Or are we one of the few? How do we know? How can we know? You know, Jesus longs to convert us. He longs to fill us with the Holy Spirit. He longs for the Holy Spirit to dwell in us and to work powerfully in us. In fact, He wants it so bad that He wants it more than the most loving Father wants to feed His children. And yet, are we receiving the Holy Spirit? Are we being filled with the Holy Spirit? The only thing getting in God's way from filling us to overflowing with His Holy Spirit is us. We are told that if all were willing, all would be filled with the Holy Spirit. If all were willing. But the sad fact of end-time Christianity is that all are not willing. All are not willing to do whatever it takes to let the Holy Spirit empty us of ourself so that He can fill us to overflowing with His Himself. The new birth, we are told, is a rare experience in this age of the world. This is the reason why there are so many perplexities where? In the churches. Many, so many who assume the name of Christ are unsanctified and unholy. They have been baptized, but they were buried alive. Self did not die, and therefore they did not rise to newness of life in Christ. This is exactly what happened in my own experience. Buried alive in baptism. Self did not die, and therefore I did not rise to newness of life in Christ for the first 30 years after my baptism. My friends, this is an important question that we have to answer. Satan leads people to think that because they have felt a rapture of feeling that they are converted... But their experience does not change. Their actions are the same as before. Their lives show no good fruit. They pray often and long and are constantly referring to the feelings they had at such a time. But they do not live the new life. They are deceived. Their experience goes no deeper than feeling. They build upon the sand and when adverse winds come, their house is swept away. Many sincere Christians in the world today are not what they think they are. They are living in a fog of self and self-deception where they think that things are fine spiritually and they don't realize their true spiritual condition. Because surrender is so hard and because closing our drowsy eyes and walking out of surrender is so easy, many, so many in the Christian world today are lukewarm. How am I really doing spiritually? How can I know How can I avoid this Laodicean fog of self-deception? Am I truly converted? Wholly surrendered? Or am I one of the many? These are the important questions we want to look at right now. I was once vacuuming the uh, lab at the university where I work, And as I was vacuuming, the more I vacuumed, the more I became convinced that the vacuum cleaner wasn't working, or at least not very effectively. Because it seemed to me like I had just seen that that yellow piece of plastic that I had just vacuumed up a couple seconds ago. And it it looked to me like it was not actually sucking the stuff up, it was actually just moving it around. And so I, I put my hand underneath the, the head to, to see if it was, the roller was spinning, and it was, and I, felt, I thought I felt some airflow down there, so I said, well, my, maybe the, the carpet's just really bad and it's just having a, it's struggling to pick up all this stuff. And so I kept on vacuuming, but the more I did, the more I became convinced that it really wasn't working. So how am I supposed to know if this vacuum cleaner is working or not? I mean, you'd think that'd be an easy problem to solve, but I was struggling, you know, if, uh, if that's so, so hard, how hard is it to know our true spiritual condition? Anyway, so I decided that I was going to try an experiment. This, uh, this vacuum cleaner was like this one right here. It had a, a clear plastic case around it where the dirt collected. So I took the lid off and I looked inside there at the dirt that was in there and I took a mental snapshot of the dirt and I said, okay, what I'll do is I will vacuum for a little bit longer and then I will look in there again and see if anything's changed, see if I'm actually accumulating more dirt. So that's what I did. And after a few minutes, I looked back in there, and you know, (laughs) kind of hard to tell. I mean, it might have changed a little bit, but how much do you expect it to change after a few minutes of vacuuming? So I was no further along. But I realized as I was looking in there that there was a filter inside that case I had never seen before, and I said to myself, ah, maybe the filter is dirty. And sure enough, it was caked. With dust and dirt. And so I took it over to the the garbage can and I made the mistake of of banging it against the side of the garbage can. A big cloud of dust uh, spewed into the air. But I eventually got that filter clean and I put it back in the vacuum cleaner and I was convinced that this was going to solve my problem. But when I turned it on, nothing really changed. It was behaving exactly the same way as it was before. At this point, I got so frustrated that I decided that I was going to get radical. I took a screwdriver and I disconnected the hose from the bottom where it connected to the head to see if I could see if there was any obstructions in that hose way. And and immediately when I disconnected that hose, I could see that there was some dirt in there. And in fact, I tried to pull it out, but I wasn't able to get it all out. So I, I took a wire and I bent the tip and I pushed it in there and I pulled a big, huge clog of dirt out of that, uh, that head where it was connected to the hose there. And then when I turned the vacuum cleaner back on, put it all together and turned it back on, something really amazing happened. The dirt inside of that clear plastic case began to twirl and swirl like a tornado inside there. All of a sudden now, for the first time, I could be confident that this thing was really working. You know, I had no idea that it was supposed to twirl like that. I had never used this vacuum cleaner before, so I didn't know what to look for. I did not recognize the signs of whether it was working. Now, if I use that vacuum cleaner and it's not swirling like a tornado in there, I know something's wrong right away. Instantly I can tell you if that vacuum cleaner's working or not. If I had just known what it looked like when it was working, I could have recognized that it wasn't working. And it's that way in the Christian life as well. You know, there are signs on the broad road. And there are signs on the narrow way. And if you and I can learn to recognize those signs, we can know which road we're on. And it's important for us to recognize these signs and know what they are. The Bible says, test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. Or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless, indeed, you fail the test. So, we have to be... uh, able to recognize these signs, and we have to recognize that not all signs are true signs. The devil has his counterfeit signs, false signs. And so what we're going to do very quickly here is we're going to look at both some false signs and some true ones. The first false sign is zeal for God. My friends, anybody can be zealous about a cause, whether they're Holy Spirit-inspired or not. You realize that, right? Take the uh, Apostle Paul before he was converted. He was zealously persecuting God's people for God's sake. So zeal is not a very good sign of our true spiritual condition. I'd like to read to you a statement that was found in the luggage of an airline passenger who had died in an air crash. This is what it said. Purify your soul from all unclean things. Completely forget something called this world or this life. The time for play is over and the serious time is upon us. How much time have we wasted in our lives? Shouldn't we take advantage of these last hours to offer good deeds and obedience? God is all we need. He is the best to rely upon. And action for the sake of God is better than all what is in this world. If God gives you victory, no one can beat you. And if he betrays you, who can give you the victory without him? So the faithful put their trust in God. Isn't that an incredible statement? Wow, this guy has some incredible zeal. This was written by Muhammad Atta, and this was found in his terrorist training guide when he and his cohorts drove those airplanes into the World Trade Center in 2001. My friends, this guy had a zeal for God and an incredible, beautiful way of expressing that zeal. But did that mean that he was converted? Does that mean that he was spirit-led? No, it doesn't. So that's fault sign number one. Zeal for God is not necessarily a sign of our true spiritual condition. The second fault sign is feelings. Many professed to love Jesus, who shed tears as they read the story of the cross, and yet they hated those who loved His appearing and shut them out of the churches. This is Ellen White's personal experience. She experienced these people that were, were seemed to be very good Christians, who were emotionally involved in Jesus, and yet they hated Jesus' people, Christ's people on this earth and shut them out of the churches. Emotions are powerful. Emotions can make us think things are true that aren't true. Emotions are not for the purpose of determining our true spiritual condition. We cannot trust our feelings. They have a place, they have a purpose, but it's not as a sign of our true spiritual condition. Many look for a special change to take place in their feelings. This they term conversion. Over this error, thousands have stumbled to ruin. Not understanding the expression, you must be born again. So my friends, zeal is not a good sign of our true condition. And feelings are not good indicators of our true spiritual condition. So those are some of the false signs. Let's look now at the true signs. And I'd like to share with you um, a, a wonderful statement from the pen of inspiration. Where she t- tells us a, a true sign that we can really rely upon. Here it is. Many profess to be on the Lord's side, but they are not. Okay, we've been there so far, yes. By what means shall we determine whose side we are on? That's exactly the question we are asking. Wow, this is great. What's next? What's the next sentence? Aren't you anxious to see what this is going to say? Who has the heart? Who has the heart? With whom are our thoughts? Upon whom do we love to converse? Who has our warmest affections and our best energies? If we are on the Lord's side, our thoughts are with Him and our sweetest thoughts are of Him. We have no friendship with the world. We have consecrated all that we have and are to Him. We long to bear His image, breathe His spirit, do His will, and please Him in all things. Who has the heart? Who has the heart? That is the key to answering this question. How am I really doing spiritually? Am I converted? Who do I enjoy being with? Whom do I pr- with whom do I prioritize my time? About whom does my daily life revolve? Who gets my best time and my best energies? And if you want to have a good practical indicator of who has your heart, look at your free time. What do you do with your free time? Do you spend it with Jesus? So now we have another question, right? If if who has my heart is a true sign of my condition, my spiritual condition, now we have another question. Who really has my heart, right? Because, of course, the Bible tells us the heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? How can we avoid being these Lord, Lord Christians who believe that Jesus has our heart how can we be, uh, like, uh, not be like Peter who says, Lord, I will be willing to die with you. Who has our heart? How can we know? You know, when Nicodemus came to Jesus, he had a specific agenda in mind about what he wanted to talk to Jesus about. But you know what Jesus did? He immediately turned the conversation to conversion. Because conversion is what Jesus knew Nicodemus needed to understand. And Jesus said something very interesting to, to Nicodemus. He said, The wind blows where it wishes. And you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. In other words, the Holy Spirit is invisible, but His work is not invisible. You see the difference? We can't see the Holy Spirit in our lives, but we can see the effects of the Holy Spirit in our lives. While the wind itself is invisible, it produces effects that are seen and felt. So the work of the Spirit upon the soul will reveal itself in every act of him who has felt its saving power. But to know Christ, uh, to know Jesus requires a change of heart. No unconverted person in his natural state of depravity loves Christ. A love of Jesus is the first result of conversion. The proof of this love is given, if you love me, keep my commandments." Love is unseen, it's intangible, but the effects of love can be seen and felt. The proof of this love is given, if you love me, keep my commandments. Spirit-inspired, love-motivated, wholly surrendered obedience is the surest sign of our conversion. How are we doing spiritually? How successful is the Holy Spirit working in me? Do I see the fruits of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Do I see the fruits of the Spirit? Do I see Him working powerfully in me to give me victory over sin? Am I seeing the Holy Spirit dwelling and living and working in me and through me? No one who abides in Him, the Bible tells us, uh, sins. No one who sins has seen Him or knows Him, 1 John 3, 6. When we know God as it, are, as it is our privilege to know Him, our life will be a life of continual obedience. <clears throat> this spirit inspired, spirit enabled, love motivated surrender to Jesus is the greatest practical sign of our true spiritual condition. I'm not talking, of course, about Pharisaic legalism. This is not about just obedience. This is talking about spirit inspired, spirit enabled, love motivated, wholly surrendered. Victory in Jesus, this is the sign of our true spiritual condition. The Bible says, my father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and so what? Prove to be my disciples. But prove yourselves doers of the word, and not merely hearers who delude themselves. Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. We will know by this that we are of the truth, and will assure our heart before him. By this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. But whoever keeps his word in him the love of God has been truly perfected. By this we know that we are in him. And the one who keeps his commandments abides in him and he in him. And we know by this that he abides in us and by the spirit whom he has given us. All these texts say the same thing. Spirit inspired, spirit enabled, love motivated, wholly surrendered obedience is the truest sign of our true spiritual condition. Do we see the Holy Spirit getting victory in our lives? Do we see the Holy Spirit making wonderful, supernatural, miraculous changes in our lives? Do we see that conversion? To whom have I given my choices? From the tiniest to the greatest, who gets to decide what I choose in every aspect of my life all the time? Hereby we do know that we know Him if we keep His commandments, 1 John 2, 3. This is the genuine evidence of conversion. Whatever our profession, it amounts to nothing unless Christ is revealed in works of righteousness. Righteousness is right doing. And it is by their deeds that all will be judged. Our characters are revealed by what we do. The works show whether the faith is genuine. On December 26, 2004, 10-year-old Tilly Smith and her parents were walking on a beautiful Thai beach. It was a beautiful sunny day. The water was warm, and it was just an exotic paradise. And as they were walking along the beach, enjoying themselves to the fullest, Tilly was watching the water, and for some reason she couldn't pinpoint at first, the water was bothering her. It was doing some weird things. It was sizzling in kind of a weird way, and it was coming in and in and in. It wasn't going in and out like you'd expect it to go. It was behaving in a weird way, and she couldn't figure out at first why that was bothering her, and then all of a sudden she remembered a few weeks before they had been studying tsunamis and the signs of an impending tsunami. And this water was behaving in the exact same way that she had learned a tsunami would, the water would behave just before a tsunami. And all of a sudden, she got hysterical. She said, I know there's something wrong. I know it's coming, the tsunami. She said that to her parents. She got hysterical. And her parents were saying, no, 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 don't worry. Everything's fine. Calm down. Nothing's going to happen. They tried to calm her, but she, she could not be consoled. She knew that that sign showed an impending disaster was about to happen. They went back to the hotel because they couldn't calm her down, and as they went in, her dad mentioned the girl's fears to the people who were managing the beach there at that hotel, and they took it seriously. They actually evacuated that beach. Just a few minutes later, 213,000 people died because of that tsunami in 2004. But not one person on that beach was hurt because One little 10-year-old girl was able to recognize the signs of impending disaster. If you had asked Tilly's parents how they were doing, they would have told you, Wonderful. It's a beautiful day in paradise. It doesn't get any better than this. They had no clue about what was happening. How are you and I doing spiritually? Are we able to recognize the signs of our true spiritual condition? Can we recognize the signs of the broad road that will warn us that we were on the wrong way? Can we recognize the signs of the narrow way that will give us courage and confidence that we are in Jesus, wholly surrendered to him? Both the narrow way and the broad road have important signs. Obedience, the service and allegiance of love, is the true sign of discipleship. Loving obedience, giving God our choices, In every aspect of our life, all the time, that wholehearted, all-or-nothing surrender is the surest sign of our discipleship. Many profess to be on the Lord's side, but they are not. By what means shall we determine whose side we are on? Who has the heart? With whom are our thoughts? Upon whom do we love to converse? Who has our warmest affections and our best energies? If we are on the Lord's side, our thoughts are with him and our sweetest thoughts are of him. We have no friendship with the world. We have consecrated all that we have and are to him. We long to bear his image, breathe his spirit, do his will, and please him in all things. How are we doing, my friends, spiritually? Who has our heart? On what do we base our confidence in who has our heart. How do we know our true spiritual condition? How do we know if we are truly converted or if we are one of those end time Laodicean people who are caught in that fog of self-deception that think that they are okay spiritually and don't realize their true spiritual condition? Who has our heart? Who has our best energies? Upon whom do we love to reflect? Who do we love to be with? How do we spend our free time? My friends, by the effects of the Holy Spirit working in us powerfully, we can see the supernatural miraculous power of God working in us and we can know we can know our true spiritual condition, but if we don't see that victory, if we don't see that that con- that constant victory in Jesus, that, that those fruits of the spirit, if we don't see the, the Holy Spirit working in powerful ways in our life, we may want to be warned that there might be a a problem with our true spiritual condition. And we might want to fall on our knees to Jesus and say, Lord, do whatever it takes to show me my true spiritual condition and to get me where you want me to be. This is an important question we've been looking at this morning. Most Christians, if you ask them, will say, yes, I'm converted. Of course I'm converted. There's going to be many who say, Lord, Lord, and expect Jesus to receive them with open arms and say well done good and faithful servant when he comes. Are we one of the many that are going to be sadly surprised by our true spiritual condition? Or are we gonna take this this question seriously? Are we gonna ask God to show us in concrete practical terms the signposts on the narrow way? My friends, my prayer for each one of us is that we will take this question seriously because Jesus warns us as late as in Christians that this is one of the defining characteristics of end time Christianity, the self-deception of our true spiritual condition. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, thank you so much that we can know our true spiritual condition. Thank you, Heavenly Father, that we can see your power working powerfully in us to do miraculous supernatural things that we know only you can do. Heavenly Father, we pray for victory over sin. We pray for uh, joy in you. We pray that you will have our heart, that you will have our best energies. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can come to you and let you be almighty God in us. We thank you for the privilege of surrender. We pray that we will get out of your way in every detail. Let you be almighty God in and through us. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse